1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. Let all your things be done with charity. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit yourselves unto such, to every one that helpeth with us and laboreth. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part they have supplied. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. The churches of Asia salute you, Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet you one another with a holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, Maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I've titled the message this morning, Looking for a Few Good Men That Love the Lord. Looking for a Few Good Men that love the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity that we have to open your precious word. We thank you, Father, for a day in our nation that is set aside to remember those who have fallen upon the battlefields, given their lives, fighting for our freedom and our liberties. I pray, Father, today as we look into the word of God, that we would understand that there is a cost to liberty. We live in a sin-cursed world that is against God, against liberty, against the Word of God and the people of God. And I pray as we look into the Word of God today that we would be challenged and encouraged, men and women, to give our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might continue to have the liberties that we have that are in danger every hour, every day. So, Lord, just help us. Encourage our hearts and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. William Jones, captain of the Marines in Providence, it was a 28-gun frigate, then in Boston, on March 20th, 1779, advertised in the Providence Gazette for a, quote, few good men, unquote. To engage in a short cruise were his words. In so doing, he gave the Marines a slogan that they would use for over 200 years. This slogan, of course, is definitive of the character of men he was seeking. You know, as we examine the Word of God, I'm reminded that God is looking for these kind of men and women who will be devoted to Him, 
who will serve him in the battles of life and liberty and for the souls of mankind. And we must understand that this is a continual battle. And it will continue until the Lord comes. And this battle is affecting us in this day and hour in which we are living. It is not just a physical or earthly battle. It is spiritual. It is with a world that is against God and the worship of God. You know, Memorial Day is a day that, was, that we as a nation honor those who have died in battle, and we should. We should honor those who have died in battle. However, as a nation, and as people, and I fear even as Baptists, we have forgotten the real source of the liberties we enjoy as a nation, but are in danger of losing. You know, the real source of liberty, liberty of conscience, liberty to worship God according to the commands of Scripture, did not come from congressional halls or executive orders. It came from men and women like you and I in New Testament Baptist churches. Millions have given their lives to the centuries since the, cruci- since the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like the Donatists that were around 398 A.D. were persecuted by Augustine and his followers. Or the Paulicians around 690 A.D. Or the Petrobrusians 1126 A.D. Or the Albigensians 1238. Or the Waldensians officially condemned in 1487. Hunted like wild animals living in mountains and caves. Subscribed for us, I believe, in Hebrews 11. The Anabaptists of the 1530s. Or the Lollards of 1575. Now these dates are generalities. There were men like... Bolsver Hubmeyer. And one of the things in his writing that catches your attention is that he said that, that religious heretics shouldn't be burned at the stake or beheaded or thrown to the stocks or tortured or maimed or killed by the church or state or the church run by the state, which was what was going on in his day. He suffered torture on the rack, was tried for heresy and convicted. On March 10, 1528, he was taken to the public square and executed by burning. His wife, exhorting him to remain steadfast. And three days later, she had a stone tied around her neck and was thrown in the Danube River. Felix Mons drowned in Lake Zurich, January 5th, 1587. Or the Englishman Edmund, Edward Reitman burned a stake, Litchfield, England, England, 1611. Or you could go to Colonial America. See, lots of people don't know this. But you could go to Colonial America... And the Puritans of New England hung those that they deemed witches. And with the noose broke the necks of the poor Quakers. 
They banished Roger Williams, John Clark. They beat William Witter, executed Mary Dyer, whipped Obadiah Holmes, hoping they would kill him. This was America. Prior to the War for Independence. In this book, Sacred Betrayal, the subtitle is The Coming Destruction of Baptist People. James Beller said this, quote, In May of 1999, I attended a Baptist history store tour of New England, somewhere in Rhode Island, in a wooded abandoned cemetery. I stood at the foot of the grave of Obadiah Holmes. I wept as I heard the story of his suffering for the cause of liberty in America. Holmes, the Baptist preacher, was beaten near to death for holding an unauthorized church service in Massachusetts. His blood ran like a river from Boston Townhouse Square, the same square visited with the blood of patriots at the Boston Massacre. I do not remember when I had wept so violently. My tears were shed for two reasons. First, I was overwhelmed by the sacrifice of this Baptist preacher for the sake of my liberty, and second, I could not believe that I had never heard of him. I was ashamed of myself, and I hurt for his testimony. I determined, at least in my own ministry, Obadiah Holmes and others like him would not be forgotten. I just assumed that Baptists had always operated on the edge of acceptance. Since I never heard a word from the pulpit about Baptist heritage, I assumed we must have been some sort of backward. I cannot remember the times I heard. Sadly, there were no great Baptist evangelists or the great camp meetings were the invention of the Presbyterians or the greatest revivals were the product of Finney Moody and Sam Jones and Billy Sunday. I thought at least the Baptists had Charles Spurgeon or perhaps Adonine Judson made up for the ineptness. I was doomed to believe all that, I, that until I read Henlo, ran headlong into the testimony of the early Baptists of America. My heart was set on fire as I heard the testimony of John Clark and Isaac Backus. I was thrilled at the power of God in the life of Shubal Stearns in the separate Baptist revival of the South. Think for a minute. If it was illegal to be a Baptist in this country until just before the Revolutionary War, how did Baptists become the largest non-Catholic group of Christians in America? The answer is Shubal Stearns and the separate Baptist revival. You see, Baptists have the greatest legacy of evangelists America has ever, ever produced. It's not Moody or Finney. No, it's Jeremiah Moore, Shubal Stearns, Daniel Marshall, Abraham Marshall, Samuel Harris, John Waller, John Taylor, Jeremiah Verdman, just to name a few. But you know what? Baptist people of the day have never heard of them. Never heard of Holmes, John Clark, who started the first Baptist church in America, Providence, Rhode Island, 
or Newport, Rhode Island. Or Roger Williams or Isaac Backus. But, but historians have. But you know, the Baptist heritage reaches further back than that. It goes all the way back to Europe and, yea, all the way back to the, uh, the apostles and John the Baptist. You see, there have been many who have been persecuted and died. Shubal Stearns, the Baptist Bible, was led in, in North Carolina. He was, of course, saved in Connecticut. He went to North Carolina. He says, and he says this, Stearns began preaching with a congregation of 17 in central west North Carolina over by Alamance. Revival broke out. He soon had 17 preachers whom he trained to set into Virginia and South Carolina. Within one generation, over 1,000 churches were birthed. And within two generations, over 5,000 churches were birthed. In all actuality, the revival is still not over. The Southern Baptists, the Independent Baptists, the Church of God, and Landmark Baptists are direct descendants from Stearns and the separate Baptists. You see, there was a time in America when these were household names in America. John Clark, Obadiah Holmes, Roger Williams, Isaac Backus, Shubal Stearns, John Gonneau. Did you ever hear John Gonneau? John Gonneau baptized George Washington. He was a chaplain in the Revolutionary Army. He was a Baptist preacher. John Leland. John Leland led the Baptists to petition James Madison to put the Bill of Rights in an amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees our religious liberty. It also gives us the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, among others. Isaac McCoy. Oh, we've all heard of David Brainerd. What about Isaac McCoy? McCoy, missionary to the American Indians. He was a Baptist. See, these are many that we have never heard of. And yet these are the ones, these are the people. It wasn't James, John Adams. I have a lot of respect and I really like John Adams. But it wasn't John Adams that petitioned for liberty of conscience and worship according to the word of God. It was the Baptists. Where did Thomas Jefferson get his words to the Declaration of Independence? You know, John Adams said none of it was his own words. As I said, John Adams was very blunt. One historian says it reads a lot like the bloody tenant, which was an article written by Roger Williams for Liberty of Conscience. Let me read you a few things. I'm going to read you the bloody tenant, some excerpts of the bloody tenant, and then I'm going to read you some excerpts of the Declaration of Independence. First, this is Blade Tenet, first, quote, first, whereas they say that the civil order may erect and establish what form of civil government may seem in wisdom most meet, that means most fit, I acknowledge the proposition to be true, most true both in itself and also considered with the end of it, that a civil government is the ordinance of God. Here's the Declaration of Independence. 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their what? Creator. See, Roger Williams says that government is of an ordinance of God. That's Thomas Jefferson reworded it, but that's what that says. The, it goes on. Uh, Roger Williams says this, and this, or, this government ordained of God is to conserve the civil peace of the people so far as concerns their bodies and goods. What's that sound like? Life, liberty, and property. Let's look at the Declaration of Independence. Endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Let's go back to the bloody tenet. Quote, but from the grant I infer, says Roger Williams, as before hath been touched, that the sovereign, original, and foundational civil power lies in the people. Declaration of Defense. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. Is there really much difference between the two? And I could go on. You see, the foundations for our liberties that we have as Americans did not come, again, from the halls of Congress. They came from Baptist churches. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Armitage wrote that Thomas Jefferson visited a, a small Baptist church which held its monthly meetings for business a short distance from his home. Mr. Jefferson attended these meetings for several months in succession. The pastor on one occasion asked him how he was pleased with our church government. Mr. Jefferson replied that it struck him with great force and had interested him much that he considered it the only form of true democracy, democracy then existing in the world. And had concluded that it would be the best plan of government for the American colonies. And this was several years before the Declaration of Independence, unquote. Historians, and I'm reading all this for a reason, obviously. Historians, I'm reading page 64 of his book, says, quote, Historians and conservative citizens not easy to forget Dr. John Clark. Clark spent 12 years in England wrestling the governor with Coddington over the state of New Rhode Island. He won independence for the state, his state, and wrote the Rhode Island Charter. The charter was widely recognized as a model for the U.S. Constitution before before pagan and reformed rewriters banished it into obscurity. In Providence, on the west facade of the Capitol building, is engraved the immortal words of Dr. Clark. Quote, A most flourishing civil state may stand and best be maintained that among our English subjects with a full liberty in religious concernments. Unquote. Um, Professor J. L. Dimon said this, quote, Thus, for the first time in history, speaking of the Rhode Island Charter, the first time in history a form of government was adopted which drew a clear and unmistakable line between the temporal and the spiritual power 
and a community came into being which was an anomaly among the nations. In other words, it was a deviation from the common rule. This was something different. Never done before. You know, what's the common rule up until that time? Well, you had fastest form of governments, kings, and all that sort of stuff. You know, America doesn't have that. We were the first not to have it. Judge Story said, quote, in the code of laws established by them, that is Clark and Williams, we read for the first time since Christianity ascended the throne of the Caesars, the declaration that conscience should be free and men should not be punished for worshiping in God in the way they were persuaded he requires, unquote. First time. 1919, Oscar Strauss, twice American ambassador to Turkey, Secretary of Labor and Commerce, and late President Theodore Roosevelt's cabinet, said this, quote, If I were asked whom to hold before the American people in the world to typify the American spirit of fairness, of freedom, of liberty in church and state, I without any hesitation select the great and immortal Roger Williams. He became a Baptist, a community and church, which is famous for never having stained its hands with the blood of its persecutors. Unquote. David Lloyd George, who was Prime Minister of England during the First World War, said this at the National Baptist, American National Baptist Convention in 1918. He said this, quote, It is Baptist principles that we are fighting for in this struggle. All that Baptists count dear is at stake in this issue. Unquote. And I would submit to you today that those principles that we are fighting for in our day are Baptist principles. You see, our liberties that we have as Americans are maintained by those who give their lives. But we can continue to fight wars on earth and lose those liberties. They aren't won on the battlefields of the world. They're won in churches like ours. I said to somebody recently, it's we Baptists who understand this principle better than anyone. This principle of liberty. Because it's from us, it's from the Bible that this originates. You know, if you were to write the, an epitaph on the tombstone of these that we have talked about and those here as we're describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I guess the epitaph that I would come up with was this in Revelation 12, 11, they love their lives unto death. You see, these love the Lord. Those that have gone before us love the Lord and these demonstrated it, and I want to notice three things from this passage quickly here this morning. First of all, they addicted themselves. They addicted themselves. In verse 15, it says, I beseech you, brethren, 
you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first, first fruits of Achaia, that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. See, they love the Lord, and they demonstrated it by addicting themselves to the ministry of the saints. The word addict means to, to consecrate or to devote, to assign or to be assigned, assigned to a place to a point by mutual agreement. You know, that not only they had they addicted themselves, but the church recognized that they had addicted themselves, and by mutual agreement of the church, they said, yeah, we, you ought to be the pastor. That's the idea here. I believe Stephanus was the pastor of the church of Corinth. And they had addicted themselves to the ministry. <clears throat> you know, some other verses that, that for example, in, in Luke 7, 8, it says, For I also am a man set. So they were, they were you know, addicted means to set or to appoint or devote. Uh, Acts 28, 23 says, When they had appointed him a day. You know, many people are addicted to many things. Drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, immorality, pornography, eating, soda pop, coffee. Get some smiles from that one. Some people are addicted to work, hobbies, you name it. People are addicted to it. How about we be addicted to God or devoted to God? It means to be devoted to and the work of God. You know, all addictions are choices. And we should make that choice. As those that have gone before us made that choice. They had addicted themselves to the ministry. They had devoted their lives. Uh, somebody has said this, the idea here is, quote, they had so arranged and set the ideals and activities of their lives as to be instantly ready to help the saints in need. Unquote. And you and I need to be addicted. You know, addicted is not a bad word by itself. It just means to be devoted to. We need to be addicted to God and the work of God. See, these were addicted. Never devoted. They were willing to give their lives. The second thing we see here, they were submitted. Verse 16, that ye submit yourselves unto such and to everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. They were submitting themselves. Paul had commanded the church at Corinth, look, you need to commit yourselves to such, and we need to be subject. You know, of course, to, to submit means to subject oneself, to obey, to submit to one's control or yield to. And, and you know, this lack of submission at the church at Corinth to their appointed minister, their appointed pastor, was what brought about all the problems they were having at the Church of Corinth. Now, I must say, can you imagine being a pastor when you didn't have the whole Bible? That'd be very difficult. I mean, basically all they had was the Old Testament at this time. I mean, 1 Corinthians is being written. Paul's going to send it out. You know, he's writing this to them. So they didn't have it yet. I mean, we still have people today say, well, that's Old Testament, so what's that matter? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. 
And evidently their pastor, Stephanus, wasn't as logical as Paul and as blunt as Peter or the great orator that Apollos was, or maybe he wasn't as worldly wise as some of them that were highly educated or as wealthy as the merchants in the church. So how could he help them? But Paul says, you just submit yourself to such. You see, their authority is the word of God. Unless you can prove wrong from the scriptures, your pastor, your parents, or any of those in authority over you, you are obligated to follow them. You know, rebellion against authority is the root cause of the breakdown of law and order in our society. It's encouraged by socialists and progressives. And young people, if you're of that mindset, you're feeding that frenzy. And you are encouraging the destruction of yourself and our nation. You know, a most basic law of submission to law and order is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. That is the most basic law of submission to law and order. A child that will obey their parents will obey the police, will obey the other authorities. Of course, that comes from Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In fact, Proverbs chapter 30 verse 17 gives us a very strong warning. The eye that mocketh at his father and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out and the eagles shall eat it. That's not a very pretty picture. And I'm old enough to know, to have experienced and seen people that have rebelled against their parents, against their church. And they go out in the world thinking they, they got this all figured out. And life is very difficult. One disappointment after another. But it's always somebody else's fault you know God isn't mocked you can do it if you want but you can't pick the consequences Hebrews 13 and 17 says obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you You know, I thought about this. You may hurt your pastor's or your parents' feelings by your disobedience, but the one whose life that will be really damaged is not mine. It's yours. It's yours. You know, I often think of the 99. I like that song. Sometimes I have to sing it. 
Jesus told the parable about the 99, that one sheep that left. You know, it grieves any parent over one child that goes astray. It grieves a pastor or one person that leaves church. It may grieve us, but it really doesn't damage us. The real damage is to the one who leaves. The real damage was to the one sheep that went astray. The 99 were still safe in the fold. Proverbs 13, 15 says, Good understanding that giveth favor, but the way of the transgressors was hard. You know, life was hard for Saul of Tarsus. The more he persecuted the Christians, the more there were. I mean, the Bible says then in those days the churches multiplied rapidly. First 300 years, churches multiplied very rapidly, although there was great persecution. In Acts chapter 9, when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, the Lord said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. In other words, it's hard for you to go against, you're bothered by what you're doing, you're you're tormented and you're convicted on your conscience. His own teacher, Gamaliel, told him and told the Pharisees, hey, you may be found fighting against God. See, a lot of people think, well, submission is weakness. No, submission demonstrates that you have power over your own carnal will and fleshly nature. See, man, Moses was a man of submission to God and his word. I'd like you to walk up and tell him, boy, you're a weakling. You know, we are all under authority, and the difference is some submit to it and embrace it and are blessed of God and favored by man, God and man, and others rebel and are cursed. Samuel, we could name many, Samuel, David, David, he could have rebelled and killed Saul, but he didn't. He submitted, even though he was wronged, and God highly exalted him. You see, these submitted themselves. To those in authority over them. Second, the third thing I want to notice, they also acknowledge them. Verse 18 says, For they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge ye them that are such. To acknowledge them means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, thoroughly, to know accurately, and to know well. You know, this is referring, uh, again, this is, this, is, this is talking about uh, Stephanus and, and those of authority in the church. And the people of God were to acknowledge those in the church that had addicted themselves to the ministry and, and, and to study their life or watch their manner of life or seek to follow their obedience to Christ that they may grow in their own walk and fellowship with the Lord. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Now Paul wasn't setting himself up to be some god to follow or worship. He said, he, what he was telling the Corinthians is, this is what Christianity ought to look like. I am a man, who I, and I have my own problems, but this is what Christianity ought to look like. Follow me in this. He clarifies it a little bit in 1 Corinthians, uh, or in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, 42, where the Bible says, He commanded us to preach unto the people, to testify, that is, he which would ordain of God to be the... I'm sorry, that's the wrong verse. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. 
Be your followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And again, in Philippians 3.17, he said, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you have us for an example. So this is, this is an illustration of what a Christian life ought to look like. Follow it. Follow it. Acknowledge them. This is how love is demonstrated, you might say. Love for the Lord. They addicted themselves. They were submitted to God. Be devoted to God. Submit to Him and the authorities He's placed over you. You know, even pastors have to submit themselves to the authority of the church and to the Word of God. Pastors' authority is not limitless, just as the president's authority is not limitless. You know, our president was right in, in telling the states and the governors, you do what you think is best in your state. Because constitutionally, he doesn't have a right, really, to tell the governors what they have to do. He just can't make any law. And to not love the Lord, Paul said, is to be anathema. That word anathema is a very strong word. It means a man accursed, devoted to the direst woes, doomed, separated from Christ. And he says, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 22, let him be anathema, maranatha. Let him be accursed, for the Lord is coming. That's what the word maranatha means. The Lord, our Lord cometh. You see, these that gave their lives that were devoted to Christ and gave their lives for the cause of Christ that we might have liberty knew that the Lord was coming. They believed it. And to not love the Lord when He comes, you'll be cursed. Well, you might say, well, I don't hate the Lord. I just want to, um, I just want to, well, I just don't want to do what He says. I'm not rejecting God. I just don't agree with the pastor. And I just don't agree with the church. And I just don't agree with the master, the, my, my parents. Well, did your pastor, your church, or your parents give you the word of God? I realize this is the age of grace. And this is the day of man. This is a time when men and women can do what they want and have their own way. That is true. But the Lord is going to return. The Lord is going to return. And then every one of us will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 10.42, the Bible says that he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead. See, do you love the Lord? Are you one of those good men or women 
that have devoted themselves to Christ like those that have gone before us, that have submitted to themselves to the word of God? Or will you be accursed? Yeah, the rejection and persecution of the prophets by Israel was a rejection of the living God and their Messiah. The interesting thing is, seven times in the Old Testament, it says something to this effect. Second Chronicles 36.15 The Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Jeremiah 7.25 and six times in Jeremiah it says this. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day, I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. You know, God isn't going to write a message for you in the sky. God's going to give you a message from himself through a man of God. And your parents. And if you will not receive that, you will be accursed. Jeremiah 44 4 said this Howbeit I send unto you all my servants the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. You know, what is it that God hates? You know, why is it that people will follow the world that really doesn't care about their souls and their eternal destiny and not follow people that love them and desire what's best for them? I mean, did the Pharisees care about Judas? You know, Judas comes to them and says, I have shed innocent blood. You know what they said? What's that to us? See, they'll do it. In other words, we don't care about that, and we don't care about you. We don't care if your conscience is defiled. We don't care if you feel guilty, and we don't care if you go hang yourself. Welcome to the real world. Did Delilah really care about Samson? I mean, she gave him her, she gave him her body, but she, did she really care about him? No. She didn't care if he got killed. Welcome to the real world. Did Sodom care about Lot and his family? No, they just laughed at him. They even threatened him, mocked him. See, God is looking for men and women who will love him with all their heart who will give their lives for him. The word love here means to be friendly to one, to delight in, and to long for. Is that you this morning? Well, how can I show friendliness to Christ? I can't see him. I can't hug him. You can his body. You know his body is? The church. 
1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, And ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Colossians 1, 18. The church which is his body. Well, I don't hate Christ. I just don't like his church. Well, you can't. That's a contradiction of terms. The Bible tells us in Revelation 1 that Christ dwells in the midst of his churches. The church is the witness of Christ. That is why the people don't like it. You see, we need men and women today who will say, I will surrender my life to God. I will die for him. I will live for him. You know, sometimes living for him is easier than dying for him. I mean, if you die for him, it's over. But living for him is every day. You've got to face that world every day. The world that's antagonistic against you. Willing to sacrifice for him, witness for him. Maybe just be a, a faithful member. You, you may not ever be in ministry, unquote. We'd be a faithful member laboring for the Lord. So God is looking for men and women. Will you addict yourself? Will you be that man or that woman? You know, as we were singing the, the song, Faith of Our Fathers, Holy faith. We will be true. I thought to myself, we ought, maybe we ought to sing that, that last chorus. Will we be true to thee, to death? Will you be true? God's looking for a few good men and women. Will you be one? Is he yours? Do you know him as your Lord and as your Savior?